Book One, Chapter Ten of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book One, Chapter Ten. Mary Backhouse, the girl whom Catherine had been visiting with regularity for many weeks, and whose frail life was this evening nearing a terrible and long-expected crisis, was the victim of a fate sordid and common enough, yet not without its elements of dark poetry. Some fifteen months before this midsummer day, she had been the mistress of the lonely old house in which her father and uncle had passed their whole lives, in which she had been born, and in which, amid snowdrifts so deep that no doctor could reach them, her mother had passed away. She had been then strong and well favoured, possessed of a certain masculine black-browed beauty, and of a temper which sometimes gave to it an edge and glow, such as an artist of ambition might have been glad to catch. At the bottom of all this outward sauvagerie, however, there was a heart and strong wants which only affection and companionship could satisfy and tame. Neither was to be found in sufficient measure within her home. Her father and she were on fairly good terms, and had for each other, up to a certain point, the natural instincts of kinship. On her uncle, whom she regarded as half-witted, she bestowed alternate tolerance and jeers. She was indeed the only person whose remonstrances ever got under the wool with old Jim, and her sharp tongue had sometimes a cowing effect on his curious nonchalance which nothing else had. For the rest, they had no neighbours with whom the girl could fraternise, and Wimborough was too far off to provide any adequate food for her vague hunger after emotion and excitement. In this dangerous, morbid state she fell a victim to the very coarse attractions of a young farmer in the neighbouring valley of Shanmore. He was a brute with a handsome face, and a nature in which whatever grains of heart and conscience might have been interfused with the original composition had been long since swamped. Mary, who had recklessly flung herself into his power on one or two occasions, from a mixture of motives, partly passion, partly jealousy, partly ennui, awoke one day to find herself ruined and a grim future hung before her. She had realised her doom for the first time in its entirety on the midsummer day preceding that which we are now describing. On that day she walked over to Shanmore in a fever of dumb rage and despair, to claim from her betrayer the fulfilment and his promise of marriage. He had laughed at her, he had laughed at her, and she had fled home in the warm rainy dusk, a prey to all those torturing terrors which only a woman in extremis can know and on her way back she had seen the ghost or bogle of Deep Crag. The ghost had spoken to her, and she had reached home more dead than alive, having received what she at once recognised as her death sentence. What had she seen? An effect of moonlit mist, a shepherd-boy brent on a practical joke, a gleam of white waterfall among the darkening rocks. What had she heard? The evening greeter of a passer-by, wafted down to her from some higher path along the fell? distant voices in the farm enclosures beneath her feet, or simply the eerie sounds of the mountain, those weird earth-whispers which haunt the lonely places of nature. Who can tell? Nerves and brain were strained to their uttermost. The legend of the ghost, of the girl who had thrown her baby and herself into the tarn under the frowning precipitous cliffs which marked the western end of High Fell, and who had since then walked the lonely road to Shamore every midsummer night, with her moaning child under her arm, had flashed into Mary's mind as she left the white-walled village of Shamor behind her, 
and climbed upward with her shame and her secret into the mists. To see the bogle was merely distressing and untoward. To be spoken to by the phantom voice was death. No one so addressed could hope to survive the following midsummer day. Revolving these things in her mind, along with the terrible details of her own story, the exhausted girl had seen her vision, and, as she firmly believed, incurred her doom. A week later she had disappeared from home and from the neighbourhood. The darkest stories were afloat. She had taken some money with her, and all trace of her was lost. The father had a period of gloomy taciturnity, during which his principal relief was got out of jeering and girding at his elder brother. The noodle's eyes wandered and glittered more. His shrunken frame seemed more shrunken as he sat dangling his spindle legs from the shaft of the carrier's cart. His absence of mind was for a time more marked, and excused with less buoyancy and inventiveness than usual. But otherwise all went on as before. John Backhouse took no step, and for nine months nothing was heard of his daughter. At last, one cheerless March afternoon, Jim, coming back first from the Wednesday round with the cart, entered the farm kitchen, while John Backhouse was still wrangling at one of the other farmhouses of the hamlet about some disputed payment. The old man came in cold and weary, and the sight of the half-tended kitchen and neglected fire they paid a neighbour to do the housework as far as the care of her own seven children would let her, suddenly revived in his slippery mind the memory of his niece, who with all her faults had the makings of a housewife, and for whom, in spite of her flouts and jeers, he had always cherished a secret admiration. As he came in, he noticed that the door to the left hand, leading to what Westmoreland folk called the house or sitting-room of the farm, was open. The room had hardly been used since Mary's flight, and the few pieces of black oak and shining mahogany which adorned it had long ago fallen from their pristine polish. The geraniums and fuchsias with which she had filled the window all the summer before had died into dry, blackened stalks, and the dust lay heavy on the room, in spite of the well-meant but wholly ineffective efforts of the charwoman next door. The two old men had avoided the place for months past by common consent, and the door into it was hardly ever opened. Now, however, it stood ajar, and old Jim, going up to shut it and looking in, was struck dumb with astonishment. For there, on a wooden rocking-chair, which had been her mother's favourite seat, sat Mary Backhouse, her feet on the curved brass fender, her eyes staring into the parlour grate. Her clothes, her face, her attitude of cowering chill and mortal fatigue, produced an impression which struck through the old man's dull senses, and made him tremble so that his hand dropped from the handle of the door. The slight sound roused Mary, and she turned towards him. She said nothing for a few seconds, her hollow black eyes fixed upon him. Then, with a ghastly smile, and a voice so hoarse as to be scarcely audible, "'Well, if come back, you maybe not expect me.' There was a sound behind on the cobbles outside the kitchen door. "'Ye father!' cried Jim between his teeth. "'Gang upstairs with thee!' and he pointed to a door in the wall conceding a staircase to the upper story. She sprang up, looked at the door, and at him irresolutely, and then stayed where she was, gaunt, pale, fever-eyed, the wreck and ghost of her old self. The steps neared. There was a rough voice in the kitchen, a surprised exclamation, and her father had pushed past his brother into the room. 
John Backhouse no sooner saw his daughter than his dull, weather-beaten face flamed into violence. With an oath, he raised the heavy whip he held in his hand and flung himself towards her. "'No, you not do it!' cried Jim, throwing himself with all his feeble strength onto his brother's arm. John swore and struggled, but the old man stuck like a limpid. "'You let her alone!' said Mary, drawing her tattered shawl over her breast. "'If he aims to kill me, you'll not say no. But he needn't murder himself.' "'There's them above as he'd taken care of that.' She sank again into her chair, as though her limbs could not support her, and her eyes closed in the utter indifference of a fatigue which had made even fear impossible. The father's arm dropped. He stood there sullenly looking at her. Jim, thinking she had fainted, went up to her, took a glass of water out of which she had already been drinking from the mahogany table, and held it to her lips. She drank a little and then with a desperate effort raised herself, and, clutching the arm of the chair, faced her father. "'You not have to wait long. Don't you fash yourself. Maybe it'll comfort you to know summat. Last midsummer day I was on Chammore Road, and it gloaming, and I saw thee the bogle, you knows, the bogle o' be Cliff Tarn, and she turned herself, and she spoke to me.' She uttered the last words with a grim emphasis, dwelling on each, the whole life of the wasted face concentrated in the terrible black eyes, which gazed past the two figures within their immediate range into a vacancy peopled with horror. Then a film came over them, the grip relaxed, and she fell back with a lurch of the rocking-chair in a dead swoon. With the help of the neighbour from next door, Jim got her upstairs into the room that had been hers. She awoke from her swoon only to fall into the torpid sleep of exhaustion, which lasted for twelve hours. "'Keep her out of my way,' said the father, with an oath to Jim, "'or I'll not answer neither for her nor me.' She needed no telling. She soon crept downstairs again, and went to the task of house-cleaning. The two men lived in the kitchen as before. When they were at home she ate and sat in the parlour alone. Jim watched her as far as his dull brain was capable of watching, and he dimly understood that she was dying. Both men, indeed, felt a sort of superstitious awe of her. She was so changed, so unearthly. As for the story of the ghost, the old popular superstitions are almost dead in the Cumbrian mountains, and the shrewd north-country peasant is in many places quite as scornfully ready to sacrifice his ghosts to the time-spirit as any bold, bad haunter of scientific associations could wish him to be. But in a few of the remoter valleys they still linger, though beneath the surface. Either of the Backhouses, or Mary in her days of health, would have suffered many things rather than allow a stranger to suppose they placed the smallest credence in the story of Bleatliff Tarn. But all the same, the story which each had heard in childhood, on stormy nights perhaps, when the mountainside was awful with the sounds of tempest, had grown up with them, had entered deep into the tissue of consciousness. In Mary's imagination, the ideas and images connected with it had now, under the stimulus of circumstance, become instinct with a living, pursuing terror. But they were present, though in a duller, blunter state, in the minds of her father and uncle, and as the weeks passed on and the days lengthened towards midsummer, a sort of brooding horror seemed to settle on the house. Mary grew weaker and weaker. Her cough kept Jim awake at nights. Once or twice he went to help her with a piece of work which not even her extraordinary will could carry her through, her hand burnt him like a hot cinder. 
but she kept all other women out of the house by her mad, strange ways. And if her uncle showed any consciousness of her state, she turned upon him with her old temper, which had lost all its former stormy grace, and had become ghastly by the contrast it brought out between the tempestuous, vindictive soul and the shaken weakness of frame. A doctor would have discovered at once that what was wrong with her was phthisis, complicated with insanity, and the insanity, instead of taking the hopeful, optimistic tinge which is characteristic of the insanity of consumption, had rather assumed the colour of the events from which the disease itself had started. Cold, exposure, long-continued agony of mind and body, the madness intertwined with an illness which had such roots as these was naturally a madness of despair. One of its principal signs was the fixed idea as to Midsummer Day. It never occurred to her as possible that her life should be prolonged beyond that limit. Every night, as she dragged herself up the steep little staircase to her room, she checked off the day which had just passed from the days she had still to live. She had made all her arrangements. She had even sewed with her own hands, and that without any sense of special horror, but rather in the provident peasant way, the dress in which she was to be carried to the grave. At last, one day, her father, coming unexpectedly into the yard, saw her carrying a heavy pail of water from the pump. Something stirred within him, and he went up to her and forcibly took it from her. Their looks met, and her poor mad eyes gazed intensely into his. As he moved forward towards the house, she crept after him, passing him into the parlour, where she sank down breathless on the settle, where she had been sleeping for the last few nights, rather than face climbing the stairs. For the first time he followed her, watching her gasping struggle for breath, in spite of her impatient motion to him to go. After a few seconds he left her, took his hat, went out, saddled his horse, and rode off to Wimborough. He got Dr. Baker to promise to come over on the morrow, and on his way back he called and requested to see Catherine Leyburn. He stammeringly asked her to come and visit his daughter, who was ill and lonesome, and when she consented gladly, he went on his way, feeling a load off his mind. What he had just done had been due to an undefined but still vehement prompting of her conscience. It did not make it any the less probable that the girl would die on or before Midsummer Day, but supposing her story were true, it absolved him from any charge of assistance to the designs of those grisly powers in whose clutch she was. When the doctor came next morning, a change for the worse had taken place, and she was too feeble actively to resent his appearance. She lay there on the settle, every now and then making superhuman efforts to get up, which generally ended in a swoon. She refused to take any medicine, she would hardly take any food, and to the doctor's questions she returned no answer whatever. In the same way, when Catherine came, she would be absolutely silent, looking at her with glittering, feverish eyes, but taking no notice at all whether she read or talked or simply sat quietly beside her. After the silent period, as the days went on and Midsummer Day drew nearer, there supervened a period of intermittent delirium. In the evenings, especially when her temperature rose, she became talkative and incoherent, and Catherine would sometimes tremble as she caught the sentences which, little by little, built up the girl's hidden tragedy before her eyes. London streets, London lights, London darkness, the agony of an endless wandering, the little clinging, puny life which could never be stilled or satisfied, biting cold, intolerable pain, the cheerless workhouse order, and finally the arms without a burden, the breast without a child. 
These were the sharp fragments of experience, so common, so terrible to the end of time, which rose on the troubled surface of Mary Backhouse's delirium, and smote the tender heart of the listener. Then in the morning she would lie suspicious and silent, watching Catherine's face with the long gaze of exhaustion, as though trying to find out from it whether her secret had escaped her. The doctor, who gathered the story of the bogle from Catherine, to whom Jim had told it, briefly and reluctantly, and with an absolute reservation of his own views on the matter, recommended that if possible they should try and deceive her as to the date of the day and month. Mere nervous excitement might, he thought, be enough to kill her when the actual day and hour came round. But all their attempts were useless. Nothing distracted the intense, sleepless attention with which the darkened mind kept always in view that one absorbing expectation. Words fell from her at night which seemed to show that she expected a summons, a voice along the fell calling her spirit into the dark. And then would come the shriek, the struggle to get loose, the choked waking, the wandering horror-stricken eyes subsiding by degrees into the old silent watch. On the morning of the twenty-third, when Robert, sitting at his work, was looking at Burwood through the window, to the flattering belief that Catherine was the captive of the weather, she had spent an hour or more with Mary Backhouse, and the austere influences of the visit had perhaps had more share than she knew in determining her own mood that day. The world seemed such dross, the pretenses of personal happiness so hollow and elusive after such a sight. The girl lay dying fast, with a look of extraordinary attentiveness in her face, hearing every noise, every footfall, and, as it seemed to Catherine, in a mood of inward joy. She took, moreover, some notice of her visitor. As a rough tomboy of fourteen, she had shown Catherine, who had taught her in the school sometimes, and had especially won her regard on one occasion by a present of some article of dress, a good many uncouth signs of affection. On the morning in question, Catherine fancied she saw something of the old childish expression once or twice. At any rate, there was no doubt her presence was soothing as she read in her low, vibrating voice, or sat silently stroking the emaciated hand, raising it every now and then to her lips, with a rush of that intense pitifulness, which was to her the most natural of all moods. The doctor, whom she met there, said that this state of calm was very possibly only transitory. The night had been passed in a succession of paroxysms, and they were almost sure to return upon her, especially as he could get her to swallow none of the sedatives which might have carried her in unconsciousness past the fatal moment. She would have none of them. He thought that she was determined to allow of no encroachments on the troubled remnants of intelligence still left to her. So the only thing to be done was to wait and see the result. "'I will come to-morrow,' said Catherine briefly, "'for the day certainly longer, if necessary.' She had long ago established her claim to be treated seriously as a nurse, and Dr. Baker made no objection. "'If she lives so long,' he said dubiously, "'the back-houses of Mrs. Irwin, the neighbour, shall be close at hand. "'I will come in the afternoon and try to get her to take an opiate, "'but I can't give it to her by force, "'and there is not the smallest chance of her consenting to it.' "'All through Catherine's own struggle and pain during these two days "'the image of the dying girl had lain at her heart. "'It served her as the crucifix serves the Romanist. "'As she pressed it into her thought, it recovered from time to time the failing forces of the will. Need life be empty because self was left unsatisfied? Now, as she neared the hamlet, the quality of her nature reasserted itself. The personal want tugging at her senses, the 
personal soreness, the cry of resentful love was silenced. What place had they in the presence of this lonely agony of death, this mystery, this opening beyond? The old heroic mood revived in her. Her step grew swifter, her carriage more erect, and as she entered the farm kitchen she felt herself once more ready in spirit for what lay before her. From the next room there came a succession of husky, sibilant sounds, as though someone were whispering hurriedly and continuously. After her subdued greeting she looked inquiringly at Jim. "'She's in a taking way,' said Jim, who looked more attenuated, and his face more like a pink and white parchment than ever. "'She's been knocking and taking a long while. She won't know ye. Look ye,' he continued, dropping his voice as he opened the house door for her, "'if you want either of us, just you call out sharp. Mrs. Ermine shall stay in with ye. She's not afeard.' The superstitious excitement which the looks and gestures of the old man expressed touched Catherine's imagination, and she entered the room with an inward shiver. Mary Backhouse lay raised high on her pillows, talking to herself, or to imaginary other persons, with eyes wide open but vacant, and senses conscious of nothing but the dream world in which the mind was wandering. Catherine sat softly down beside her, unnoticed, thankful for the chances of disease. If this delirium lasted till the ghost hour, the time of twilight, that is to say, which would begin about half-past eight, and the duration of which would depend on the cloudiness of the evening, was over, or better still, till midnight were past, the strain on the girl's agonised senses might be relieved, and death come at last in softer, kinder guise. "'Has she been long like this?' she asked softly the neighbour, who sat quietly knitting by the evening light. The woman looked up and thought. "'Aye,' she said has come in at tea-time, and she's been mostly taking ever since." The incoherent whisperings and restless movements, which obliged Catherine constantly to replace the coverings over the poor wasted and fevered body, went on for some time. Catherine noticed presently, with a little thrill, that the light was beginning to change. The weather was growing darker and stormier, the wind shook the house in gusts, and the farther shoulder of High Fell seen in distorted outline through the casemented window, was almost hidden by the trailing rain-clouds. The mournful western light coming from behind the house struck the river here and there. Almost everything else was grey and dark. A mountain ash, just outside the window, brushed the panes every now and then, and in the silence every surrounding sound—the rare movements in the next room, the voices of quarrelling children round the door of a neighbouring house, the far-off barking of dogs— made itself distinctly audible. Suddenly Catherine, sunk in painful reverie, noticed that the mutterings from the bed had ceased for some little time. She turned her chair, and was startled to find those weird eyes fixed with recognition on herself. There was a curious malign intensity, a curious triumph in them. "'It must be eight o'clock,' said the gasping voice. "'Eight o'clock!' And the tone became a whisper as though the idea thus half involuntarily revealed had been drawn jealously back into the strongholds of consciousness. "'Mary,' said Catherine, falling on her knees beside the bed, and taking one of the restless hands forcibly into her own, "'can't you put this thing away from you? We are not the playthings of evil spirits. We are the children of God. We are in His hands. No evil thing can harm us against His will.' It was the first time for many days she had spoken openly of the thought which was in the mind of all, 
and her whole pleading soul was in her pale, beautiful face. There was no response in the sick girl's countenance, and again that look of triumph, of sinister exultation. They had tried to cheat her into sleeping and living, and in spite of them, at the supreme moment, every sense was awake and expectant. To what was the materialised peasant imagination looking forward? To an actual call, an actual following to the free mountainside, the rush of the wind, the phantom figure floating on beside her, bearing her into the heart of the storm? Dread was gone, pain was gone. There was only rapt excitement and fierce anticipation. "'Mary,' said Catherine again, mistaking her mood for one of tense defiance and despair. "'Mary, if I were to go out now and leave Mrs. Urban with you, and if I were to go up all the way to the top of Shan Moss and back again, and if I could tell you there was nothing there, nothing, if I were to stay out till the dark has come, it would be here in half an hour, and you could be quite sure when you saw me again that there was nothing near you but the dear old hills and the power of God, could you believe me?' and try, and rest, and sleep?" Mary looked at her intently. If Catherine could have seen clearly in the dim light, she would have caught something of the cunning of madness slipping into the dying woman's expression. While she waited for the answer, there was a noise in the kitchen outside, an opening of the outer door, and a voice. Catherine's heart stood still. She had to make a superhuman effort to keep her attention fixed on Mary. Go said the hoarse whisper close beside her, and the girl lifted her wasted hand and pushed her visitor from her. "'Go!' it repeated insistently, with a sort of wild beseeching. Then brokenly the gasping breath interrupted, "'There's no fear, nor fear, for the likes of you!' Catherine rose. "'I'm not afraid,' she said gently, but her hand shook as she pushed her chair back. "'God is everywhere, Mary.' She put on her hat and cloak, said something in Mrs. Irwin's ear, and stooped to kiss the brow which, to the shuddering sense under her will, seemed already cold and moist with the sweats of death. Mary watched her go. Mrs. Irwin, with the air of one bewildered, drew her chair nearer to the settle, and the light of the fire, shooting and dancing through the June twilight, threw such fantastic shadows over the face on the pillow that all expression was lost. What was moving in the crazed mind? Satisfaction, perhaps, at having got rid of one witness, one jailer, one of the various antagonistic forces surrounding her? She had a dim, friended notion she should have to fight for her liberty when the call came, and she lay tense and rigid, waiting, the images of insanity whirling through her brain, while the light slowly, slowly waned. Catherine opened the door into the kitchen. The two carriers were standing there, and— Robert Ellesmere also stood with his back to her, talking to them in an undertone. He turned at the sound behind him, and his start brought a sudden flush to Catherine's cheek. Her face, as the candlelight struck it amid the shadows of the doorway, was like an angelic vision to him, the heavenly calm of it just exquisitely broken by the wonder, the shock of his presence. "'Are you here?' he cried, coming up to her, and taking her hand, what secret instinct guided him, close in both of his. "'I never dreamt of it, so late. My cousin sent me over. She wished for news.' She smiled involuntarily. It seemed to her she had expected this in some sort all along. But her self-possession was complete. "'The excited state may be over in a short time now,' she answered him in a quiet whisper, 
but at present it is at its height. It seems to please her. And withdrawing her hand, she turned to John Backhouse. When I suggested that I should walk up to Shanmoss and back, I said I would come back to her in half an hour or so, when the daylight was quite gone, and prove to her there was nothing in the path. Her hand caught her arm. It was Mrs. Irwin, holding the door closed with the other hand. "'Miss Leban, Miss Catherine, you're not going to go, not going up that path?' The woman was fond of Catherine, and looked deadly frightened. "'Yes, I am, Mrs. Irwin, but I shall be back very soon. Don't leave her. Go back.' Catherine motioned her back with a little peremptory gesture. "'Don't you let her, sir,' said the woman excitedly to Robert. "'One's enough, I'm thinking.' and she pointed with a meaning gesture to the room behind her. Robert looked at Catherine, who was moving towards the outer door. "'I'll go with her,' he said hastily, his face lighting up. "'There's nothing whatever to be afraid of. Only don't leave your patient.' Catherine trembled as she heard the words, but she made no sign, and the two men and the woman watched their departure with blank, uneasy wonderment. A second later they were on the fell-side, climbing a rough, stony path, which in places was almost a watercourse, and which wound up the fell towards a tract of level swampy moss or heath, beyond which lay the descent to Shanmore. Daylight was almost gone. The stormy yellow west was being fast swallowed up in cloud. Below them, as they climbed, lay the dark group of houses, with a light twinkling here and there. All about them were black mountain forms. A desolate, tempestuous wind drove a gusty rain into their faces, a little beck roared beside them, and in the distance from the black gulf of the valley the swollen river thundered. Elsmere looked down on his companion with an indescribable exultation, a passionate sense of possession which could hardly restrain itself. He had come back that morning with a mind clearly made up. Catherine had been blind indeed when she supposed that any plan of his or hers would have been allowed to stand in the way of that last wrestle with her of which he had planned all the methods, rehearsed all the arguments. But when he reached the vicarage, he was greeted with the news of her absence. She was inaccessible, it appeared, for the day. No matter. The vicar and he settled in the fewest possible words that he should stay till Monday, Mrs. Thornburg, meanwhile, looking on, saying what civility demanded, and surprisingly little else. Then in the evening Mrs. Thornburg had asked of him, with a manner of admirable indifference, whether he felt inclined for an evening walk to High Gill to inquire after Mary Backhouse. The request fell in excellently with the lover's restlessness, and Robert assented at once. The vicar saw him go with puzzled brows and a quick look at his wife, whose head was bent close over her worsted work. It never occurred to Ellesmere, or if it did occur he pooh-poohed the notion, that he should find Catherine still at her post far from home on this dark, stormy evening. But in the glow of joy which her presence had brought him, he was still capable of all sorts of delicate perceptions and reasonings. His quick imagination carried him through the scene from which he had just momentarily escaped. He had understood the exultation of her look and tone. If love spoke at all, ringed with such surroundings, it must be with its most inward and spiritual voice, as those speak who feel the eternities about them. But the darkness hid her from him so well that he had to feel out the situation for himself. He could not trace it in her face. "'We must go right up to the top of the pass,' she said to him, as he held a gate open for her which led them into a piece of larch plantation on the mountainside. "'The ghost is supposed to walk along this bit of road above the houses, 
till it reaches the heath on the top, and then it turns towards Bleecliff Tarn, which lies higher up to the right, under High Fell. "'Do you imagine your report will have any effect?' "'At any rate,' she said, sighing, "'it seemed to me that it might divert her thoughts a little "'from the actual horror of her own summons. "'Anything is better than the torture of that one fixed idea "'as she lies there.' "'What is that?' said Robert, "'startled a little by some ghostly sounds in front of them. "'The little wood was almost dark, and he could see nothing.' "'Only a horse trotting on in front of us,' said Catherine. "'Our voices frightened him, I suppose. "'We should be out on the fell again directly.' and as they quitted the trees, a dark, bulky form to the left suddenly lifted a shadowy head from the grass and clattered down the slope. A cluster of white-stemmed birches just ahead of them caught whatever light was still left in the atmosphere, their feathery tops bending and swaying against the sky. "'How easily, with mind attuned, one could people this whole path with ghosts,' said Robert. "'Look at those stems, and that line of stream coming down to the right.' and listen to the wind among the fern. For they were passing a little gully deep in Bracken, up which the blast was tearing its tempestuous way. Catherine shivered a little, and the sense of physical exhaustion which had been banished like everything else, doubt, humiliation, bitterness, by the one fact of his presence, came back to her. "'There is something rather awful in this dark and storm,' she said, and paused. "'Would you have faced it alone?' he asked, his voice thrilling her with a hundred different meanings. "'I am glad I prevented it.' "'I have no fear of the mountains,' she said, trembling. "'I know them, and they know me.' "'But you are tired, your voice is tired, and the walk might have been more of an effort than you thought it. Do you never think of yourself?' "'Oh, dear, yes,' said Catherine, trying to smile, and could find nothing else to say. They walked on a few moments in silence, splashes of rain breaking in their faces. Robert's inward excitement was growing fast. Suddenly Catherine's pulse stood still. She felt her hand lifted, drawn within his arm, covered close with his warm, trembling clasp. Catherine, let it stay there. Listen one moment. You gave me a hard lesson yesterday. Too hard. I cannot learn it. I am bold. I claim you. Be my wife. Help me through this difficult world. I have loved you from the first moment. Come to me. Be kind to me. She could hardly see his face, but she could feel the passion in his voice and touch. Her cheek seemed to droop against his arm. He felt her tottering. Let me sit down, he said, and after one moment of dizzy silence he guided her to a rock, sinking down himself beside her, longing but not daring to shelter her under his broad Inverness cloak against the storm. "'I told you,' she said, almost whispering, "'that I was bound, tied to others.' "'I do not admit your plea,' he said passionately. "'No, not for a moment. For two days I have been tramping over the mountains, thinking it out for yourself and me. Catherine, your mother has no son. She should find one in me. I have no sisters. Give me yours.' I will cherish them as any brother could. Come and enrich my life. You shall still fill and shelter theirs. I dare not think what my future might be with you to guide, to inspire, to bless. Dare not, lest with a word you should plunge me into an outer darkness I cannot face. He caught her unresisting hand and raised it to his lips. 
"'Is there no sacredness?' he said brokenly. "'In the fate that has brought us together, out of all the world, here in this lonely valley? "'Come to me, Catherine. "'You shall never fail the old ties, I promise you. "'And new hands shall cling to you, new voices shall call you blessed.' "'Catherine could hardly breathe. "'Every word had been like a balm upon a wound, "'like a ray of intense light in the gloom about them. "'Oh, where was this softness bearing her, "'this emptiness of all will, of all individual power?' "'She hid her eyes with her other hand, "'struggling to recall that faraway moment in Marysdale. "'But the mind refused to work. "'Consciousness seemed to retain nothing but the warm grasp of his hand, "'the tones of his voice.' He saw her struggle, and pressed on remorselessly. "'Speak to me. Say one little kind word. Oh, you cannot send me away, miserable and empty!' She turned to him, and laid her trembling free hand on his arm. He clasped them both with rapture. "'Give me a little time.' "'No, no,' he said, and it almost seemed to her that he was smiling. "'Time for you to escape me again, my wild mountain bird. "'Time for you to think yourself and me into all sorts of moral mists. "'No, you shall not have it. "'Here, alone with God and the dark, bless me or undo me. "'Send me out to the work of life maimed and sorrowful, "'or send me out your nights, your possession, pledged.' "'But his voice failed him. "'What a note of youth, of imagination, of impulsive eagerness there was through it all.' The more slowly moving inarticulate nature was swept away by it. There was but one object clear to her in the whole world of thought or sense. Everything else had sunk out of sight, drowned in a luminous mist. He rose, and stood before her as he delivered his ultimatum, his tall form drawn up to its full height. In the east, across the valley, above the farther buttress of High Fell, there was a clearer strip of sky, visible for a moment among the moving storm-clouds, and a dim, haloed moon shone out in it. Far away, a white-walled cottage glimmered against the fell. The pools at their feet shone in the weird, passing light. She lifted her head and looked at him, still irresolute. Then she, too, rose, and helplessly, like someone impelled by a will not her own, she silently held out to him two white, trembling hands. Catherine! my angel, my wife. There was something in the pale virginal grace of look and form which kept his young passion in awe. But he bent his head again over those yielded hands, kissing them with dizzy, unspeakable joy. About twenty minutes later, Catherine and Robert, having hurried back with all speed from the top of Shanmos, reached the farmhouse door. She knocked. No one answered. She tried the lock. It yielded, and they entered. No one in the kitchen. She looked disturbed and conscience-stricken. "'Oh!' she cried to him under her breath. "'Have we been too long?' And hurrying into the inner room, she left him waiting. Inside was a mournful sight. The two men and Mrs. Irwin stood close round the settle, but as she came nearer, Catherine saw Mary Backhouse lying panting on her pillows, her breath coming in loud gasps, her dress and all the coverings of the bed showing signs of disorder and confusion, her black hair tossed about her. "'It's been awful work since you left, miss,' whispered Mrs. Irwin to Catherine excitedly, as she joined them. "'They thought she heard somebody fleeting and called. 
It was the wind came scurrying round the place, and she all but threw herself out to bed. And as she shooted for Jim, and they came, and they and I, it's been as much as we could have do to hold her. Look, steady, exclaimed Jim. She'll try it again. For the hands were moving restlessly from side to side, and the face was working again. There was one more desperate effort to rise, which the two men checked, gently enough, but effectually, and then the exhaustion seemed complete. The lids fell, and the struggle for breath was pitiful. Catherine flew for some drugs which the doctor had left and shown her how to use. After some twenty minutes they seemed to give relief, and the great haunted eyes opened once more. Catherine held barley-water to the parched lips, and Mary drank mechanically, her gaze still intently fixed on her nurse. When Catherine put down the glass, the eyes followed her with a question which the lips had no power to frame. "'Leave her now a little,' said Catherine to the others. "'The fewer people and the more air, the better. And please, let the door open. The room is too hot.' They went out silently, and Catherine sank down beside the bed. Her heart went out in unspeakable longing towards the poor human wreck before her. For her there was no morrow possible, no dawn of other and softer skies. All was over, life was lived, and all its heavenly capabilities missed for ever. Catherine felt her own joy hurt her, and her tears fell fast. Mary, she said, laying her face close beside the chill face on the pillow, Mary, I went out, I climbed all the path as far as Shambos. There was nothing evil there. Oh, I must tell you. Can I make you understand? I want you to feel that it is only God and love that are real. Oh, think of them. He would not let you be hurt and terrified in your pain, poor Mary. He loves you. He is waiting to comfort you, to set you free from pain for ever. And he has sent you a sign by me. She lifted her head from the pillow, trembling and hesitating, still that feverish, questioning gaze on the face beneath her as it lay in deep shadow cast by a light on the window-sill some paces away. "'You sent me out, Mary, to search for something, the thought of which has been tormenting and torturing you. You thought God would let a dark, lost spirit trouble you and take you away from him, you, his child, whom he made and whom he loves. And listen.' While you thought you were sending me out to face the evil thing, you were really my kind angel, God's messenger, sending me to meet the joy of my whole life. There was someone waiting here just now, she went on hurriedly, breathing her sobbing words into Mary's ear. Someone who has loved me, and whom I love. But I have made him sad, and myself. Then when you sent me out, he came too. We walked up that path, you remember, beyond the larchwood, up to the top, where the stream goes under the road. And there he spoke to me, and I couldn't help it any more. And I promised to love him and be his wife. And if it hadn't been for you, Mary, it would never have happened. God had put it into your hand, this joy, and I bless you for it. Oh, and Mary, Mary, it is only for a little, little while, this life of ours. Nothing matters not our worst sin and sorrow, but God and our love to him. I shall meet you some day, I pray I may, in his sight, and all will be well, the pain, all forgotten, all. She raised herself again, and looked down with yearning, passionate pity on the shadowed form. Oh, blessed answer of heart to heart! 
There were tears forming under the heavy lids. The corners of the lips were relaxed and soft. Slowly the feeble hand sought her own. She waited in an intense, expectant silence. There was a faint breathing from the lips. She stooped and caught it. "'Kiss me,' said the whisper, and she laid her soft, fresh lips to the parched mouth of the dying. When she lifted her head again, Mary still held her hand. Catherine softly stretched out hers for the opiate Dr. Baker had left. It was swallowed without resistance, and a quiet to which the invalid had been a stranger for days stole little by little over the wasted frame. The grasp of the fingers relaxed. The laboured breath came more gently, and in a few more minutes she slept. Twilight was long over, the ghost hour was past, and the moon outside was slowly gaining a wider empire in the clearing heavens. It was a little after ten o'clock when Rose drew aside the curtain at Burwood and looked out. "'There is a lantern,' she said to Agnes, "'just by the vicarage. How the night has cleared!' She turned back to her book. Agnes was writing letters. Mrs. Labour was sitting by the bit of fire that was generally lit for her benefit in the evenings, her white shawl dropping gracefully by her, a copy of The Cornhill on her lap. But she was not reading. She was meditating, and the girls thought her out of spirits. The hall door opened. "'There is someone with Catherine,' cried Rose, starting up. Agnes suspended her letter. "'Perhaps the vicar?' said Mrs. Lowburn, with a little sigh. Her hand turned the drawing-room door, and in the doorway stood Ellesmere. Rose caught a grey dress, disappearing up the little stairs behind him. Ellesmere's look was enough for the two girls. They understood in an instant. Rose flushed all over. The first contact with love is intoxicating to any girl of eighteen, even though the romance be not hers. But Mrs. Laban sat bewildered. Elsmere went up to her, stooped, and took her hand. "'Will you give her to me, Mrs. Laban?' he said. His boyish looks at low, his voice unsteady. "'Will you let me be a son to you?' Mrs. Laban rose. He still held her hand. She looked up at him helplessly. "'Oh, Mr. Elsmere, where is Catherine?' "'I brought her home,' he said gently. "'She is mine, if you will it. Give her to me again.' Mrs. Laban's face worked pitifully. The rectory and the wedding-dress, which had lingered so regretfully in her thoughts since her last sight of Catherine, sank out of them altogether. "'She's been everything in the world to us, Mr. Ellesmere.' "'I know she has,' he said simply. "'She shall be everything in the world to you still. I've had hard work to persuade her. There will be no chance for me if you don't help me.' Another breathless pause. Then Mrs. Leyburn timidly drew him to her, and he stooped his tall head and kissed her like a son. "'Oh, I must go to Catherine,' she said, hurrying away, her pretty withered cheeks wet with tears. Then the girls threw themselves on Ellesmere. The talk was all animation and excitement for the moment, not a tragic touch in it. It was as well, perhaps, that Catherine was not there to hear. "'I give you fair warning,' said Rose, as she bade him good-night, "'that I don't know how to behave to a brother, "'and I am equally sure that Mrs. Thornburg doesn't know how to behave to a fiancé.' Robert threw up his arms in mock terror at the name, and departed. "'We are abandoned,' cried Rose, flinging herself into the chair again. 
then with a little flash of half-irresolute wickedness, "'and we are free. Oh, I hope she will be happy.' And she caught Agnes wildly round the neck, as though she would drown her first words in her last. "'Madcap!' cried Agnes, struggling. "'Leave me at least a little breath to wish Catherine joy.' And they both fled upstairs. There was indeed no prouder woman in the three kingdoms than Mrs. Thornburg that night. After all the agitation downstairs, she could not persuade herself to go to bed. She first knocked up Sarah and communicated the news. Then she sat down before a pier-glass in her own room, studying the person who had found Catherine Leyburn her husband. "'My doing, from beginning to end,' she cried with a triumph beyond words. "'William has had nothing to do with it. Robert has had scarcely as much. And to think how little I dreamt of it when I began!' "'Well, to be sure, no one could have planned marrying those two. "'There's no one but Providence could have foreseen it. "'They're so different. "'And after all, it's done. "'Now then, whom shall I have next year?' End of Book One, Chapter Ten